Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry, and it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of the latest print issue, you can head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And if you do that right now, I'm delighted to say that you will find an article in there by my guest today. My guest is David Kinneman. David is the president of Barnes a leading research and communications company which aims to provide spiritual influencers with credible knowledge and clear thinking, enabling them to navigate a complex and changing culture. And David is the author of a number of books, including Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. And most recently, his title, Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. And it's that final point of the perception of Christians being extreme that david wrote about in the latest issue of premier christianity magazine so i do encourage you to check that out the link one more time is premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample but david kinneman welcome to the program thank you for having me it's great to have you in and uh, here on the show we always like to start by talking about a person's early life and faith so tell me did you grow up in a christian family i did yeah pastor's home for uh for what that's worth i was uh Born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, which is out in the desert of uh, the southeastern part of North America. And um, I grew up in a pastor's home. Actually, I have, I think, 10 or more uncles and great uncles and great grandfathers who were in the ministry. So I always figured I would end up doing that, and in some way I am. Yeah. Tell me more about that, because... Uh, some people wouldn't necessarily think, oh, you know, you're a researcher. You, I think you've interviewed more than a million people for research purposes. They wouldn't necessarily kind of equate that with pastoring or Christian ministry. So what's the link there? Well, I think the focus of the company, Barna, has always been on the intersection of faith and culture. And I think about the, the, the particular ways that I'm uh, uniquely qualified for this work, which is I approach it really with a pastor's heart. So even though we've done more than a million interviews, as you said, um, I think about the individual lives that those uh, interviews represent. And, and when we come up with statistics um, through the work that uh, that our team is doing, um, I think about what that represents in, in terms of the households and the families and the churches and the communities uh, that are comprised in those statistics. So, you know, the, num- the numbers have uh, real flesh and blood to me. There's real people behind the numbers. Yeah, absolutely. So um, going back to your, your early life, growing up in a, in a Christian home, I guess some people would say you had no chance but to end up as a Christian with that kind of a heritage. Did you have any kind of bumps along the way or serious doubts about your faith? I don't think I've ever had, um, well, I think I've, I've certainly had doubts about faith and about my faith, um, but I don't think I've ever had a period where I, I was really considering walking away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've gone through everything from major health issues with our family and, you know, other seeing other people, you know, lose children uh, to, to disease or, you know, tragic accidents. And so even in some of the, the life's worst issues and, and challenges, um, I think my faith has grown through those things, if anything. But but certainly it's one of these questions, especially in our current modern age when there's so many scientific explanations for things. Um, it's one of those questions we always wrestle with is like, well, what, what is it that we believe? You know, or, or is this just like a modern day Greek mythology where, you know, God lives in his mountain and, you know, he, he rattles, mm-hmm. uh, rattles around and that becomes the thunder. So, you know, there's those questions that always are there. 
but for me, it's been um, very much about the skepticism that I think I have experienced is more about the health and vitality of the church. It's uh, it's less about like, well, is this true? Mm. Uh, it's more about, well, could, could we do this any better? Could we be more... Um, you know, authentic in what God's called us to be today. Mm. I know I've had experiences before where I've read church history, um, either from a long time ago or sometimes from more recently, and you think it's interesting this this uh, challenge isn't often brought up by skeptics. Often they ask things like, how can a good God allow suffering? But if I were a skeptic, if I were an atheist, I'd ask, how could a good God allow the church to be in such a mess, frankly, a lot of the time? Now, now you're researching the church today, and, and a lot of your thinking, a lot of your research has led to some real challenges for pastors. It's, it gets quite practical, doesn't it? As you say, it's more than just the numbers. So, so what are some of the things where you've, you've done the research and thought, hang on, we need to change perhaps quite drastically the way we do ministry because of people's perceptions of Christianity. Well, we're currently working on a study that gets exactly to this point, which is really the future of discipleship. And we live in a context that we call digital Babylon. So digital Babylon defines for me as the the sort of culmination of 10 years of research on this. We're we're living in what we call the screen age. And young people are screen agers. They spend a disproportionate amount of their waking hours uh, with screens in front of them, uh, sometimes multiple screens. And so this is one of the new things that that society and, and our culture is is doing to people. They have now these screens in front of them all the time. And so how do we think differently about discipleship in the screen age? And I think that's a really important question for us. So mm-hmm. we're doing a lot of work on that question. It's, it's not that uh, human nature changes. God's nature doesn't change. But the tools, the context, um, you know, in Scripture we see all these times when the place in which you're, you're planted um, – the context matters. If you're in Egypt, there is a way to be faithful. If you're in exile in Babylon, there's a way to be faithful. If you're in Sodom and Gomorrah, if you're in Jerusalem, if you're in Nineveh, if you're in Ephesus, I mean, there's a way to think about this. Even the, the book of Revelation has these seven churches in uh, the province of Asia, which is modern day Turkey. And, and there's a way, e- even in the specific uh you know, uh, places of those seven churches, there's a different word from the Lord to, to sort of disciple differently. So I think we're in a very unique time mm. uh, of digital disruption, of change, of spiritual questioning, of uh, radical transparency, of a reinvention of how do we think about the sacred and what is authoritative in our lives. And so it's a great opportunity for the church uh, to, I think, to, to do discipleship, not to reinvent it, but to reinvent the way we think about it and the way we practice mm. it. Do you think, though, that the average church leader is even kind of in touch with where culture's at? Uh, I think so, yeah, but not to the extent they need to be. In other words, uh, they they constantly wrestle with the fact that they're dealing with different opinions and perceptions and challenges and current issues and hopes and fears and dreams and aspirations and expectations that people have. Um, and say so they recognize that the, the world is changing. I mean, it's one of the great needs when we talk to faith leaders and ask them, okay, what are you, what's keeping up you at night? Mm. And they say, it's the changing culture. It's the fact that it's harder than ever to get people to engage in our church. We feel like we're losing the next generation. So they see the writing on the wall that the culture is changing. They just don't always have the right lens or the tools to understand that context and then to respond in the right way. But, but you're, when you're researching, you're often talking to perhaps young people, millennials, and saying, what's your perception? of church why did you walk away from church um how much of that kind of feeds into practical here's what churches need to do because some might say oh this is fine you're just kind of identifying the problem you're identifying how hard it is and how you know so many young people have left the church but but can that really tell us how to reach these people well it's a great point it's a it's a tension that i sort of live with as a research 
as a researcher and then as a research company, it's something we actually talk a lot about. The the line between giving people the right information at the right time for the right reasons and then maybe telling them what to do. And um, at some points, I think people do need to be taken by the hand and opened up a new way of thinking and say, well, here's some maybe questions you could ask yourself or maybe even more importantly, some strategies you could try. Um, but we also have to be careful not to tell people how to do it. We can't, as a researcher, want something for someone more than they want it themselves, right? I, I see all sorts of issues and challenges when we come alongside an organization or a local church and we say, man, you're missing some stuff. But if I, if I tell them what to do, um, they, they will reject that, but most often reject that as you know someone who doesn't understand their context. So the best I can do is to give them uh, a sense, a broader sense, uh, help them see the whole, see the whole picture, and then ask them questions to spur them on and pray for them that the Holy Spirit would guide them to really understanding what it is that he is asking them to do mm-hmm. in response to their situation. But it's a tension that we have about how practical versus how um, prescri- you know, description versus prescription mm-hmm. uh, that we provide. Yeah. A lot of the work that you've done, people will be familiar with, but it was centered in in the US, a lot a lot of the research you've done. But you're over in the UK and you're launching some new research with World Vision. I'd love to hear what you've found through that study and how you think it can help Christians in the UK. Well, I think part of the broader story is that Barna uh, is is trying to do more work in, in the UK and around the world because um, we, th- we think we have a way of seeing these social trends and, and especially trying to awaken the church to the needs of the next generation. And so we're just pleased to play a part in that. And with World Vision, we're launching uh, this new study called uh, the the UK Church in Action. And we're looking at the way in which um, a number of things, the way in which local churches think about ministry and mission today. Uh, We interviewed more than 300 uh, clergy uh, church leaders here in the UK and asked them about their priorities for mission and and their uh, perceptions of social justice and what it is that each individual church is doing. And I'm proud to report that local churches are doing a ton here Mm -hmm. in this country uh, to serve the poor, to um, reach out even in a global context um, and, you know, provide mission and ministry opportunities uh, in those contexts. So, you know, I think a lot of people miss uh, the, the the level of activity that's happening. And then along with that, one of the other, I think, pretty cool parts of that study, we've done a lot of work through the last couple of decades on the perceptions of faith, positive and negative. And mm-hmm. this study with World Vision looks at the perceptions of faith among Christians and non-Christian adults. So just what's the brand of Christianity here in the UK? And, and some of the negative mm-hmm. perceptions certainly are there. But one of the headlines is the growing indifference that people have. And we think I've I've done a lot of a lot of ruminating about this that um, that indifference is actually a tougher problem than hostility. Um, apathy is is worse than antipathy. Uh, when people don't like you, there's at least some level of relevance. Uh, but when they're indifferent, mm-hmm. there's it's hard. You can to at s- least have a conversation with people when they disagree with you because you can talk about why you disagree and kind of bash it out. But if they're just indifferent, then you can't even have a conversation because they don't want to have one. Yeah, and uh, so it's really it's it's really challenging because they just they just literally do not think there's any relevance to faith. Uh, in any way. Now, it's it's also true that part of what's fun about the research in the UK is even though it is uh, increasingly post-Christian, uh, faith and matters of faith are very important to UK adults. And, and we did a study in Scotland and in the Republic of Ireland and in other places. And even in these uh, very secular contexts, there are, are green shoots. There's a level of 
interest and, and uh, activity around spirituality that's really buried beneath the surface. So that's another good, I think, mm. a really good uh, result from the research, right. an unexpected one. Yeah. So it seems like you've identified, and, and certainly as tally with my experiences of talking to church leaders, most churches are doing social action of some sort. And yet there's a kind of indifference from the wider population. So what's going on there? Are people not aware of the kind of good work that Christians are doing? Or do they just think, oh, that's nice, you're doing good works, but that doesn't really affect the way I live my life? Uh, it's a combination of things. But the the main thing is that for for so much of our society, and we see this in the U.S. and in other, in other contexts, um, governments, businesses, the social sector, um, even just you know, really kind and caring people, even celebrities care about causes. So I think the church has sort of been muscled out at some of the things that it originally did and and er- literally originated. Mm. Uh, a lot of the nonprofit and charity sector comes from a Christian sensibility and, mm-hmm. and worldview, uh, but most most of that has now been sort of, I think, in a good way. It's been taken on mm-hmm. by this, the structures by of our people. society. Yeah. So it's easy for the church to be overlooked in that, even though we are, uh, as members of the church, members of the church, members of the Christian community, doing a lot of that good. We see it in the U.S. Um, the majority of Americans think that the poverty relief, the good things that happened in the United States would happen with or without people of faith, that it doesn't really matter if they're involved. But when, in fact, that's, you know, if people of faith stopped showing up, stopped giving money, stopped offering hospitality, uh, there would be even more people in greater need, and mm-hmm. I mean, uh, massive amounts of that, and and yet that's often overlooked. So, uh, there's good discussion about do we, you know, do we do a, a a PR campaign on behalf of the church of all the good we're doing? And I, I think there's reasons to consider that. I think in, in in large part, one of the most important things we can do in light of this research is to remind fellow Christians how important their service is, how 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 much God sees their work, to to talk better. Uh, and let's just say this: talk more more clearly about the why behind it, mm-hmm. behind their mission, and um, and especially with young people, young adults, and teenagers, to really help them develop an outward facing faith. Well, well, this is actually one of the criticisms that comes from some within the Christian community, and they say. You know, you you talk a lot about all the good the church is doing and you're doing your food banks and your street pastors. But hang on a minute. What about the message? Because as you've identified, celebrities and other charities, they can all do good works as well. And some Christians get a bit nervous about us even talking so much about social action because they don't want us to forget, well, the reason we do it is the gospel. And we want to get that across. So so is is there a... Do, do those people have a point that the the balance might have tipped even in this country slightly to we're sort of doing so much good works that have we actually forgotten to back it up with a gospel message as well? Well, I think there's some evidence in that in the the World Vision study that we just completed, and um, you know you can find more about that study and and see all the different ways we asked about that in our in our work. What's cool is that both church leaders and Christians in this country believe that you can hold both concepts. At once in your brain, and and in fact, you should mm-hmm. do that to be a, a holistic Christian. That that the message of Christ compels us, and we are evangelistic in nature to save souls. And we're, that also wants that that also uh, demands that we respond to the needs around us. And uh, so, what's I think I think a good uh, result from the research is that people think it, it doesn't have to be either or. Mm. So, at what point in your life did you um, feel like this is a kind of career path for you, or is it more than that? Is it a calling? Well, some days I still wonder. <laughs> I hope the stats work, work will uh, will work out for me. Um, no, I, I think uh, I started at this thinking I would one day get back into church ministry or who knows what. Um, but I, I began to 
you know, after four, five, six years, just really love the nature of the work. And and then the the mentor that I had, uh, George Barna, the founder of the company, uh, began to suggest that, you know, maybe one day I should work on a book. And, and um, it took another four or five years for me to really get around to that. But it was it began to begin crystallize after, you know, that those first five or so years, which is crazy because the early days <clears throat> of my work there, I was a pretty terrible writer. Um, I probably still am. Um, uh, a, pr- a pretty lousy public speaker, and I know I, I'm still a lousy at that. But um, you know, over time, I think it was one of those things where I c- continued just to stick at it. And uh, you know, it's, it's one of the the small words of wisdom I might give a younger person is that you know, so often the breakthrough is not in the first year, or the second year, or the fifth year, or the, even the seventh year. I remember looking back at one of the first press releases. I finally felt like I got it. it was like year eight <laughs> of working at the company. So yeah. sometimes it takes you know a, a long uh, obedience, uh, just doing the work, learning the business, learning the craft. And and I think we need more of that yeah. uh, with young Christians today. Yeah, and we don't really talk so much about that. Maybe because we live in such an instant society. You already mentioned the screen ages and how we just have all this stuff kind of immediately at our fingertips. Um, perhaps we need to talk more and share the stories of, of the long road. I think people would be really kind of amazed and surprised to hear that story from you because you have been kind of front and center of Barna for some time. And I guess people might have assumed you had this figured out from the get go and you're an expert right from the beginning. Well, I think I forget uh, just how much, uh, how many weeks and months and years go by and learning the craft of something and then learning, you know, how, how to see the whole um, is something of uh, it's not just a, it's not just an art. There is a real um, discipline to that, and so even in young staff and others that have come along, I think I'm sometimes too impatient with them. But just reminding them, hey, this, this stuff takes time to really yeah. get right and to get to get your own skill set uh, level to the aspirations that you have. And whereabouts are you based? Because you talked about growing up in Arizona. Yeah, the company is based in California in the Los Angeles area. Uh, Barn also has an office in Atlanta. Um, and so, and then we're, we have uh, an office here in the London area. Mm. And it's interesting because California. Um, arguably is a totally different kind of cultural vibe to, I don't know, say Atlanta, where you have your other office. Is that kind of noticeable when you travel between the two places? Uh, Well, I think it's so interesting. Wherever you go, in any place in the world, there's these things that make us like everyone else in the world, uh, you know, the McDonald's and the retailers and the brands that sort of now define our global culture. And then there are things that are so distinct to where you are in that moment and that when you're in San Diego, it's different than Los Angeles, and that's different than San Francisco, and that's certainly different than Atlanta or Birmingham or New York City or London or Milton Keynes or, uh, you know, where, wherever that, that place may be. And it's so interesting to see those things that mm. make it uniquely geographically yeah. itself. It's interesting talking about geography and faith as well, because from the little bit I know about America, I imagine that um, Atlanta, perhaps there's perhaps, I don't know, you tell me there's a bit more of a warmth towards Christianity and perhaps people are a little bit more skeptical out on the West Coast. Absolutely. And what's crazy, though, is that you have even in places that are deemed to be quite post-Christian or quite secular, uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco, uh, a majority of Americans would identify as Christian. They have a Christian background or tr- or tradition, and and many of them are quite active. And then even in places like Atlanta, you'd have a, a lot of secularism, and and you have this whole halo effect that happens in certain regions of the country, even here in the UK, where you've got people that that want to look more religious than they actually are. So you have this mix of things that happen in very secular contexts. You have more religion that springs up. And then you, in more religious environments, you have the idol of false piety where people want to look religious. Uh, in, in survey research, we call it the halo effect, 
where people try to represent themselves in the survey research as having you know very devout religion, mm-hmm. but they don't really have much. I guess we don't really have an equivalent of that in the UK. I mean, some people might just say, if you're comparing the two countries, look, the UK is much further down the road of kind of atheism, secularism, and it doesn't really matter where you go. It seems like there's quite a lot of hostility out there. Would your research back that up? Well, I mean, even looking here at the UK, among ethnic uh, minority communities, there's a lot more religious fervor. Um, you, you know, clear, clearly among Islamic um, uh, folks, that would be the case. But among uh, black uh, residents here in the UK, there's a lot more religious tradition, uh, even in certain rural communities or certain parts of the country. I mean, this is so interesting how, mm-hmm. you know, you see the Northern Ireland in comparison to, to Southern Ireland would have a big difference in terms of, of Protestant versus Catholic mm-hmm. and, and sort of in Catholic circles, you'd have a certain sort of readout of the way they live their faith and, and the way they examine it. So it's so, as we're saying, sort of the regionality of faith and the tribalism of faith and where you get your identity and what you want to be known for. And mm-hmm. this actually gets back to something we'd started our conversation at, that among young people, it's so interesting that their decision about whether they want to become and stay a Christian in large part is whether they want to be like the older Christians in their community, in their tribe. And in, in a lot of ways, unfortunately, um, we see over and over that young people are saying more often than ever, I don't want to really be like these mm-hmm. people or become them. And that's one of the reasons why they end up walking away from the, the Christianity of their, of their mm-hmm. parents and grandparents. Wow. I wonder how much of that is political um, because certainly there's a stereotype of – um, which may not be accurate, but there's there's a stereotype of some American Christians where those who are of an older generation will tend to be uh, fairly right wing, conservative, Republican, voted for Trump, and a lot of the a lot of the younger people, certainly a lot of the younger Christians, look at that and they just they don't, they can't understand it. It seems so. How much of that is political? Do you think that younger people just look at the politics of their parents and say, "I don't want to be like that"? Are they really rejecting the theology, or are they more rejecting the the kind of political application of the theology? Well, it's both. Um, but I, I would argue, just looking at Scripture, it's it's more than political. It really comes down to our lived theology. And when you look at the book of Galatians, for example, you know, the idea that we begin our lives in the Spirit, that when we try to perfect it in human effort, and there is something fundamentally cracked about a Christianity that tries to prove itself through works. And let me just give you a quick story about that. Um, I did this book called Unchristian about a decade ago, and the little simple way I described that was we looked at all these negative perceptions of the church towards uh, among non-Christians. And and so many people said, well, I mean, those are non-Christians. They don't have the mind of Christ. They're they're blinded by the spirit of the age. And yet I, I quickly began to tell the story that um, if that's true, that this is a generation of people that are, you know, way off the mark, it, it could also be true that the church is really like the older brother of the prodigal son story and and that we've actually missed the mark of what it means to be a grace-filled community who who really wants to love and restore people just because they're God created them in their image and and whether they're Christian or non-Christian we can love them and so I, I think I think many people responded well to that but, but others really rejected that premise and I, I think what whether it's political issues or human sexuality or other kinds of things, we don't have to, we can disagree in love and mm-hmm. still see people with whom we disagree as fellow journeyers on this, this, uh, on this earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's, a, I think, a real sense in which young people, when they reject Christians, older Christians or Christian communities, it's a, a lot around the self-righteousness of that community. And so, you know, a way to think about this is mm-hmm. God is just as concerned with 
our self-righteousness in the church as God is concerned with unrighteousness in the world, maybe even more so with mm-hmm. self-righteousness. So I, I think they, they're rejecting the political uh, issues, but they're also, I think, finding a way to, to, to really reject that sort of live theology that's really wrong at heart. It's such an important topic for many people because for many people's experience will be to have children, to have a Christian family, and then see their kids perhaps in teenage years, walk away from the faith. So this kind of a topic of why young people leave is, is going to really hit at people's hearts for those who've had that, that kind of experience. And presumably you've talked to people in that situation. Mm. Has any of your research been able to kind of help people practically and think, well, you know, here's a, here's a way forward here of how I or my community can actually reach out to the prodigals? Well, we've been doing a couple of years of study on this whole question of why they stay. And we're coming to a theory about five research-driven insights about this and to just rattle them off sort of quickly. This is um, why people stay in church. Yeah, why, why these young people stay engaged in their through their teenage years and into their young adult years uh, is a sense of cultural discernment that they understand how to live in the world but not of the world. They can really live that theology. They believe Jesus is, out, is active outside and inside the church, and they want to be a part of that. Um, there is a sense of meaningful relationships that they develop. That's the second point. Uh, they they believe their best friends and the people that they can count on most are in the church. Um, they want to be like those people, like we talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, a sense of vocational discipleship that they're they're called by God to do something in the world and and make something of their life uh, to develop a life's work, whether that's one career or many careers. Uh, that's the third element. The fourth element is the sense of outward facing mission. That the church isn't just a social club uh, to be joined. It's a it's a, a community of people who are meant to live for the common good of others. Um, and and then finally, they experience a, a real Jesus. They believe that God is active in the world. That they see miracles. They see the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They believe that Jesus really speaks to them through the pages of Scripture and through the voice of the Holy Spirit and and the voice of wisdom of of other Christians. And so we think those five elements are. It's a little bit of chicken egg. We can't predict which is first, but those five elements certainly define the experience of these young people who are staying engaged. Only about one in 10 young Americans, 18 to 29, who grew up with the Christian faith have those sort of five characteristics. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do to, I think, develop a deeper, mm. deeper, deeper set of measures for uh, for discipleship, to do discipleship differently, more holistically. Mm. Um, now, obviously, you're over here launching UK research, and we'll talk more about the UK in a moment, but I can't let this interview go without talking about one of the, the things that has just dominated the political and the religious scene in over the last few years, really, which is, of course, the election of Donald Trump, and specifically how we understand this word evangelical. And I think a lot of people would say that the word evangelical has kind of been in crisis for some time. You know, I've spoken to people in this country who felt that, who felt that actually the perception of the word evangelical has been a real problem. And people um, will often think more about the politics of evangelicalism, and they won't think about, well, actually, this is supposed to be a theological word. And I think most people would agree that, that Trump's election has kind of exacerbated the problem. It's made it more obvious so where do we go from here because some are arguing that now is really the time that we have to drop this word entirely if we want to save it well as a researcher one of the cool things is i get to be a little switzerland about this because part of what we do is just report the findings and and uh, it's true that there is a a greater crisis around the brand of evangelicalism than ever before uh, at least in the united states um, and I think I think that is affecting around the world, and and and, and that the 
the election of Donald Trump obviously mm. has, has sent uh, ripples yes. around. Yes, well, I mean, there was uh, some evangelical leaders gathered together at Wheaton College in America recently, and the reason they gathered, as I understand it, was that evangelicals around the world had said, because of what's happened with Trump, the word evangelical is seen as such a negative thing, which is fascinating, because it means that American politics is affecting how people in the UK see their evangelical friend. Well, I mean, what's even more interesting and maybe troubling is that uh, this small percent of American Christians, as we estimate, only 7% or so of American Christians are evangelical. And among them, 79% voted for Trump, as our our data indicated. I know others are about, it's really similar, about 81%. Yeah, it's always around 80% of white evangelicals yeah. voted for Trump. And, um, and so part of what I think is important is the is the questions that they have around even social issues, um, climate change, uh, refugee response, um, obviously sort of uh, economic issues like free trade. Um, there's a whole range of questions that I think are uh, pro-Israel and the sort of the, the move of, um, of, the, of uh, the, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, a whole range of questions. I mean, American evangelicals, when they are able to exert political influence, have, have, have influenced a lot of things around the world. Mm. Um, and for those American evangelicals, they're proud of that. They, they, they think this is, you know, their sort of God-given destiny. Um, and I think that's one of the big questions that is, is part of what Barna is trying to study is, you know, okay, what do we make of this thing called the church together? How do we think about mm-hmm. global evangelicals? How do we understand our, our moment? How do we help think about the, the transmission of faith to the next generation of committed Christians? And how do we help them identify who they want to be in the world. Uh, Maybe they'll choose the word evangelical to use. Maybe they'll choose something else. I mean, I know you said you're trying to be Switzerland, but from from your (laughs) answer, it sounds to me like you agree that the brand is in a bit of a crisis. Absolutely. The data shows it. So uh, again, is, is this not an argument for dropping the word and coming up with a new one? Uh, well, I mean, there's smarter people than me who can really answer that from, you know, theologians and church leaders who are going to make the the decision around those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what's also interesting being a researcher is you see these terms or concepts, you know, you don't hear a lot of uh, uh, people using the term seeker sensitive today uh, like you would have a decade ago or certainly two decades ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I think part of the reason why we debate whether the, the term evangelicals should stay is that um, there's a lot of people that care a lot about that term and about the underlying theology that that matters there. And this is something that Barna has looked at for a long time, that for the most part, a lot of people who who some polling companies would call evangelical, they really don't have the theology of an evangelical. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who have the theology of an evangelical wouldn't use the term evangelical to describe themselves. Yeah. And that's certainly true in places like Scotland and the UK. Uh, you know, in England, there's, there's a lot of people that have more devout theological, more orthodox theological positions than they realize, and yet they wouldn't use the term evangelical. If current trends continue, you have people predicting the onward march of secularism in this country, and, you know, in a few years' time, it seems no one will be going to church and there won't be any Christians left. I mean, the the numbers, as some people have reported them, have been incredibly pessimistic. Is there much in your research to offer any kind of hope for those who just think, actually, those who are kind of atheists are winning all the arguments, winning all the battles here, and we're going to end up with no one going to church in a generation or two? There's plenty of evidence that shows there will be um, Christians for many, many, many generations. And I mean, uh, least of all the scriptures that say uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Uh, when you look at the total numbers in absolute terms, uh, what's what's interesting is that in some ways that group of committed, engaged, even young people, uh, the the strength of their 
Christian expression is growing. Mm-hmm. And this is part of why I'm not just being Switzerland about the term evangelical, you know, to, to, to sort of play word games with you. It's that they get a choice. They get to choose how they want to live out mm-hmm. their faith and what they want to be called and how they want to live that out. I don't think most older Christians or Christian institutions have reckoned with the huge changes that younger Christians are going to bring to the table. Right. It's one of the most significant findings across all the countries, all the work we do. Under 35 Christians are approaching and thinking about their lived Christianity much different than are those that are 35 and older. Mm. It's a huge, huge generational difference. I, I think it's because of the rise of digital Babylon. They're mm. living in a new kind of exile, and they're having to think a, li- a lot differently, like Daniel did, about the how and why of faithful presence. Um, and so we have to help them in that journey. But they get the choice, ultimately, in how they're going to think about it. That's my kids. That's, you know, uh, maybe you're, for listeners, their kids or grandkids, they, they get a choice. I'm 44. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I've been talking a lot with my kids, not just to help them believe what I believe, but to think about what will it look like for them to be faithful in this new digital age and, mm-hmm. and how will their kids and their kids' kids live out this thing called Christianity. So I have a tremendous amount of hope, even from the numbers, despite the declines in some of the places where we might say, wow, this is, this is pretty, pretty grim. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually see a lot of, of uh, bright lights uh, among this young group of, of Christians who are trying to, to live faithfully in this new, in this new digital context. I guess um, some older people worry uh, and you will use terms like compromise uh, when it comes to the younger generation and, and they see people moving on maybe morality or, or some older Christians will look at young people who, for, for example, have no problems with things like same-sex marriage or to use a completely different example, younger people who care about the environment and climate change. Um, is there not a bit of um, fear, perhaps perhaps well-placed fear from those who are older Christians who look at the next generation and just think they're too liberal, basically, whether it be in a theological or political sense, that they're going away from the Bible? And Is that a concern amongst older Christians? Absolutely. We see that being a huge, huge uh, concern in our data, that parents and especially grandparents and, and those of an older generation uh, sort of worry about where the next generation will, will wind up theologically, politically, mm-hmm. socially, morally, economically. Yeah. Um, there's increasing indicators that people in the United States uh, and around around the West are open to more so- socialized forms of government, um, even as they're more tribal and you know more more sort of nationalism is rising as well. Um, and there's plenty of reasons to be you know optimistic or concerned, depending mm-hmm. on your point of view. Mm-hmm. And I think there's um, for, first as a Christian, we we should give no place to fear. I mean, the New Testament says uh, God has not given us a, a, a spirit of fear but a spirit of, of, of love and power and a sound mind. And, and so the gospel gives us a totally different way to think. And you see, it is one of the, one of the things that I think is so powerful about the, the testimony of the New Testament mm. is these men and women, the disciples, for example, or, or Paul, who are willing to give up their lives over and over again. You see it in the scriptures that they, they, the fear of death isn't really anything to them. Mm. So I think we have great opportunities to yeah. choose a different kind of spirit today. Yeah. And in the latest issue of Premier Christianity magazine, you've written a fantastic piece for us, David, about how we live when the world sees us as extremists, when um, when we're living in digital Babylon. So I do encourage you to check that out. Just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample, request a free copy of the latest issue, and you can read more from David about how we should live as Christians in this cultural moment. But for now, David, it's been great to chat. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Sam. It's my pleasure. Premier Christianity Magazine. In this month's issue, find out how the church reacted to the Grenfell Tower fire in our exclusive interview with Bishop Graham Tomlin. 
Plus, is hidden disappointment killing the church? We look at how to handle this difficult emotion and discover Christian views on gender and women's ministry in the church. Plus five miraculous stories, news, reviews and more. Out now in the June edition. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales. Do hope you enjoyed that interview from a moment ago with David Kinnaman. If you want to hear a slightly longer version of that interview, it's actually available on The Profile podcast. Just go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile and all the links are there or just search on your usual podcast provider for The Profile. You'll be able to access past shows and as I say, the slightly longer version of my interview with David is available in podcast format. The same goes actually for the interview you're about to here slightly condensed version airing this afternoon but the full version is available on the podcast i'm going to be speaking to ron matson from koinonia house but before we get into that a reminder this show is brought to you in association with the magazine that i edit it's premier christianity magazine the uk's leading christian publication if you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue which also features an article by david kinnaman then just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample type your details in we would be delighted to send you a copy but today on the profile i'm speaking to ron matson ron is the president of koinonia house or k house for short it's the ministry from which chuck missler produced much of his bible teaching chuck missler was a very well known bible teacher producing resources such as learn the bible in 24 hours he sadly passed away earlier this year but the ministry through k house is continuing and ron is heading it up and i'm so pleased to have ron with me in the studio today ron welcome to the program well it's a joy to be here just wanted to begin by expressing um, our condolences from from everyone here at premier uh, for, for your loss for, for chuck missler someone who was so widely respected and loved as a bible teacher what will your memories be of chuck because obviously you knew him personally as well well uh, chuck was a person i think that impacted um, certainly thousands tens maybe hundreds of thousands of people around the world uh, and i think it was his just love of scripture um, the his approach of looking at the Bible as more than just uh, a, a place to find systematic theology, but an integrated message system. Um, that really had a huge impact on me. But on a personal level, uh, getting to know him personally, we lived with him the last six years in New Zealand, um, was a wonderful experience. He is a man who has a wicked sense of humor. Uh, there is a side to him that... Um, uh, is very refreshing for someone who has um, such a uh, a far-reaching ministry. He used to say, uh, you know, Ron, uh, when they say that uh, you cast a long shadow uh, in your ministry, he says normally that happens right as the sun is getting ready to go down. He always had a, a quip for um, why there were so many people around the world that were acting and reacting to him. But incredibly humble man, was always surprised uh, always uh, blessed when anyone would um, uh, recognize him, let alone uh, express their appreciation to him. So how did you personally first come across Chuck and his ministry? Well, both of us were in Southern California at the same time, He uh, older than, than I. I was working at that time uh, with Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa during the Jesus Movement of the mid-70s. That's the 1970s. Um, <laughs> and uh, Chuck used to come and do a Monday night Bible study, and he was sort of a, uh, a conundrum to all of us in that this was really a church 
that was primarily uh, attended by young people, um, although there were uh, people of means there. Uh, but uh, Chuck was one of these fellows that would uh, show up on a Monday night. He would be in a pinstripe suit sometimes. He would drive up in his gray Ferrari. Uh, you just wondered, who on earth is this person? And then you'd go listen to him, uh, and he just had a whole uh, different and fresh approach to the Bible. So that's when I really became aware of him. It wasn't until 1992 um, that uh, he came. We, uh, my wife and I, Marcy, were living here in England, and uh, uh, he uh, came through England, and, and um, there was a circumstance where I needed to pick him up at the airport uh, to transport him somewhere else. So I got a chance to spend a weekend with him. He, uh, he integrated with our family, and during that time, um, we were our hearts were just knit together. He he expressed. Uh, I was uh, he's from a technology background. I was working as a consultant at IBM at that point uh, down in Portsmouth, and uh, uh, there were just too many things that were too similar. So yeah. uh, that began a relationship that then was forged. Uh, went on his board of directors, and uh, uh, three years ago became the uh, replaced him as the president and CEO of the ministry. Yeah. I want to talk more about your work now as President and CEO of K House um, and what that kind of will look like in the future. But just to go back for a minute to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, because that will be a church that many people will be familiar with, a kind of famous church, really, because it was at the centre of the of the Jesus movement, as you say, in the 1970s, with all of these hippies coming to Christ. Quite an exciting time. Tell me more about how you you found yourself there and what your memories are of, of that quite special time, really, in Christian history. Well, it's quite re- remarkable. I was in my mid-20s. Uh, it was at a time where um, uh, young people were were seeking answers. Um, the the hippie movement w- was uh, quite large in California, but at that time um, I was living in Northern California, and I came across uh, some contemporary Christian music, uh, which was very unusual back then, and I was quite moved by it. And so I. Uh, sponsored a Jesus uh, music concert in my little town of Eureka, California. It's up near the Oregon border. And uh, the response was tremendous. Well, that that led to not only a good uh, outcome there, but there was great feedback back at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And somehow this, uh, I found myself being invited uh, to uh, Costa Mesa to begin to organize uh, what was then their Saturday night concerts, which would have two to three thousand kids every Saturday night, um, uh, and and I mean I was twenty four, twenty five, so to speak, mid twenties, and uh, found myself organizing these large outreach events uh, associated with the church. Um, I would meet weekly with Chuck Smith, and it was it was sort of just riding a tide. It's it's like. Um, uh, being someone in a boat, you, you the tide is just taking you. Uh, you're not really directing it, and it was a it was an amazing time to be there. Well, some some people have kind of referred to this almost as a as a bit of a revival that happened amongst hippies in the 1970s in America. Would you use that kind of terminology yourself? Yes, I think I, 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 it obviously it affected uh, tens of thousands of people, millions of people worldwide. I think, and uh, but it wasn't just centered there. I think I think that was the uh, as is typical the Los Angeles. Area would be an area where the media would would react first, but it was happening uh, all over the United States. It was happening here in England. Um, there 
was um, a young uh, music duo named Malcolm and Alwyn, uh, which were massive here in this country during that time. Uh, and so there was just a sovereign work of God. And that's the way you know that it's, it really is a work of the Holy Spirit, is that it's orchestrated in a way that no man can take credit for. It's something I'm actually quite keenly aware of myself, because uh, Premier Christianity is the magazine that I now edit. It was originally Buzz magazine, and that was started in 1965, and actually has a long history of covering certainly some of the kind of Christian music scene that, that you're mentioning. Um, so it's quite quite wonderful to be able to talk about some of the details with you um, in, in all that was happening in that time. But tell me more about your own story. How did you first come to Christ? I like to quip when people ask me that. I'd say I was born a Christian uh, because I consider anything prior to Christ I was dead. Uh, so that always sort of gets them, what? <laughs> I was uh, fortunate in one respect in that um, I was raised by Christian parents. Um, uh, and uh, so at a very early age, uh, really heard the gospel. Um, at an early age, 10 years old, committed my life to Christ. Uh, and, and at that time, I was living in Northern California, uh, growing up into my early teens. And this is the same time as the uh, emerging youth movement uh, of rebellion, uh, referred to as the hippie movement. It really started in North Cal- Nor- uh, uh, Northern California, made its way south to the larger cities, and so surrounded by that. And so I, very early on, um, had to make a, a decision and a stance whether I was going to go with the, the popular flow of, of most young people at that time or whether I would stand with uh, with Christ. And uh, um, I wasn't alone, of course. There were plenty of people that did that. And I think that, that um, over time, uh, I think uh, we just became um, very aware that uh, the alternative to truth was chaos and depression, and and uh, but we had light, and so we just pursued that. And that uh, you connected very quickly with with people, uh, and that's at the time when I got, began to get connected with these people down at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Unusual. I came from a very small area of Northern California. Uh, go down to a church at that time was probably one of the first mega churches uh, in Southern California, uh, and it was bizarre to have this little little boy from the country of redwood trees uh, to uh, find himself thrust right in the middle of the the Jesus movement Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and organize things not only at the church but um, we would uh, put on festivals at Disneyland uh, have 18,000 people come to a festival at Disneyland Knott's Berry Farm uh, I was the first to uh, to do outdoor arena type things with musicians and bands, and uh, some of the first festivals that were done uh, were were done there, and 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 I had the the honor of of uh, organizing much of it. So that was a microcosm of what the Lord was doing everywhere. It sounds like Christian ministry has has been part of your life really right from a very early age. You talk about in your mid twenties organizing some of these events. So, so tell me more about what God led you into after that. My wife and I um, both had a real after the Lord, but very early on in our ministry experience, uh, we felt the sense uh, that if we were to be able to um, explore more types of ministry, that we probably needed to find a different financial model, as it were, to uh, to allow us to go. Uh, we, our good friend Malcolm Wilde, uh, coming from England, um, 
really introduced us to the idea of of, of ministry here. So in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, we began to bring team, teams uh, during the the church, the house church movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, in order for us to participate in that, I, I had to do what Paul did. I had to make tents. And uh, so through a, um, a long series of fortunate circumstances, I feel a little bit like Joseph um, with no real talent. And yet I found myself over time uh, um, uh, finding success in the area of uh, being a management consultant and eventually found myself in the aerospace industry in a very rarefied environment uh, and uh, working for some of the largest aerospace companies uh, in the world. Uh, and was all based out of the UK at this point? It was, well, it was actually based out of Los Angeles to begin with. Then I, w- I moved to, the, to IBM's Federal Sector Division headquarters uh, in upstate New York. I was there for four years prior to coming here where at that time uh, the, uh, my position uh, was as a senior consultant uh, to uh, their uh, program here, which was a program for the Ministry of Defense, the Merlin Helicopter Program. So I came over in 1991 and uh, began to work with that. And that, that kept us uh, employed, gave me my uh, ability to come here uh, to the U.K. So the Lord provided, like Paul's tent making, provided for us and our family and other ministry partners that we were able to uh, uh, bring over at that time. And uh, there are many works here in Great Britain uh, that are as a result of some of the early sponsorship that we provided uh, in the early 90s of people yeah. coming over to so England. We've, we've the Ministry of Defense to thank, in part, for you Absolutely. being able to minister here. You can say your tax dollars are at work, finally. <laughs> And and so it, what's lovely about that is that it, g- it gave us a tremendous freedom uh, to not necessarily have to follow the standard process of trying to uh, extract from the people we're ministering to um, our, our our means of living. And uh, so I, I can see the beauty and, and freedom that the Apostle Paul spoke about. Uh, we refer to that as being a spiritual entrepreneur uh, to where you, you can have... A, a job where you're connected with the real world, and yet the Lord can open up ministry opportunities for you also. And so that led to us pastoring. And uh, in fact, I had a television program here for two and a half years on Revelation TV, where I taught an hour and then did a Q and A for an hour, and uh, that was a lot of fun also. If you're working in a in a quote unquote normal job and earning your money that way, there are some amazing strengths to be able to to do that and then to pastor a church with the rest of your time. I mean, one of them that immediately comes to mind is how I speak to a number of church leaders um, and they will often tell you that they can be quite frustrated when it comes to evangelism because they're spending, understandably, a lot of their time pastoring people who are already Christians and ministering to them, but there isn't always an outlet for them meeting non-Christians. Whereas, as you say, if you're if you're working in a completely different environment, mm. that, that gives you opportunities there. Well, I think if you take a look at the, uh, the first century church, I think that was the, the predominant model. The, the idea of either the the um, salaried uh, pastor um, staff um, or the itinerant missionary that that gathers uh, support. I think you find that that was the exception rather than the rule. Um, Paul, of course, makes reference that it wasn't until he was in prison in Rome that he actually started to receive consistent gifts for the house arrest uh, where he was uh, being kept. Uh, and yes, you are correct. I think that that one of the perhaps failures, and I have to be careful here, I don't want to indict people that have made uh, uh, ministry within the church their profession, but the problem with 
having as your profession is um, you can not only lose contact um, with what's really happening around you because you are uh, your world is focused on the people that are providing your support um, but also I think that uh, it it gives them a sense of 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 counting the sheep and uh, in a way that uh, a person comes in the door of course you want to maintain them because that's another person that can possibly put something in the offering plate and uh, when you don't have that pressure um, you you can in, in fact do minister differently uh, it's a it's a, a model that not many use today uh, because we like these ideas of of organizations and buildings and and the f- full-time dedicated staff and that's all fine and well um, but I'm more uh, even now I'm more interested in, in seeing uh, the everyday person being equipped for the ministry and that's one of the things that was very attractive to us uh, when we begin to get more and more involved with uh, Chuck Messler's ministry was he was bivocational uh, in that uh, up until very late in his career he was he was managing uh, large uh, corporate ventures and uh, some of them successful some of them not and uh, and it was that connection uh, in those arenas that allowed him to bring a perspective on teaching the Bible that you won't get from uh, um, seminary or uh, from the normal church uh, pulpit. Uh, that that perspective is different when you're connected uh, in a way with the technical world or with the uh, the business world or or whatever. You were leading a church. Was this in Calvary Chapel in Portsmouth? Yes, we had started a small fellowship. Um, it still is going. It's mm-hmm. it, um, I'm very big on on small. Uh, indigenous home fellowships. I think that was the model of the first century. Uh, we encourage that, in fact. Uh, not that people uh, couldn't and shouldn't uh, attend larger fellowship meetings. I think those are lovely, uh, especially when it comes time to corporate ministry and worship. Uh, nothing is more exciting than to be around other believers that are enjoying the Lord together. But when it comes to the interpersonal ministry, I think the um, the home fellowship, the interpersonal relationship, I think every Christian needs to find a, a small group of people that, that uh, they can care for and they can be... Uh, um, feel the caring of others and uh, and they can get to know them really it's very easy in large mega churches uh, to sort of lose yourself and uh, have that check in check out type mentality where uh, small groups are something that um, require an intimacy which is a vulnerability which I believe is important uh, for ministry. You're very well travelled. You, we've talked about America. You came here to the UK to, to lead a church here. Uh, you're now based, I think, in New Zealand. Yes, that's right. What has that diversity and experience of different countries um, ministering in different areas, what have you learned through that? Well, I think first and foremost for my wife and I and our family is that we've learned the beauty of being an alien. Um, especially involved, I'll, I'll just segue here a little bit uh, to show you this wicked humor of Chuck Missler that sort of rubs off on me. But um, uh, he, he he's written a lot on you know aliens, yes. i.e. you know outer space sort of things. And uh, so I, I often would uh, say to people, well, I work in a ministry, but uh, Chuck brought me along because I'm a living example of an alien. <laughs> and uh, of course, I'm, I'm referring to the fact that I'm living as a foreigner. Uh, uh, it 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 does give us actually um, uh, a fresh perspective and, and an ability not to get caught up in uh, the local politics, uh, the local um, struggles, 
um, because you're you're here, and uh, you can say yeah, fine and well, uh, but um, our citizenship is in heaven, and uh, and therefore we don't entangle ourselves um, unnecessarily. It doesn't mean that we're not concerned or engaged uh, as we should be as, as good stewards. But I think the important thing for us to recognize is that our real citizenship is in heaven, and there's where, that's where we need to be making our investment. You mentioned this um, teaching that Chuck would do on aliens, and it's interesting sometimes when you Google Chuck Missler's name, one of the criticisms that comes up is, hang on, is this some sort of Bible teacher who believes in UFOs and aliens, and this all sounds very dodgy, and it's, it's really upset some people. What's going on there? What, who was this Bible teacher who was talking about aliens, and, um, and where on earth do you find that in the Bible? Well, you know, part of the problem that people have uh, that are in what I'll call the safe brick-and-mortar type churches is they're used to the same type of sermons that are taught over and over and over again. And fair enough, if that if that safe place is a nice warm blanket for them, fine. Uh, Chuck recognized that there is uh, an audience and there are people that really desire a little more than that. And uh, because of his inquisitive mind, uh, his technical background, and his vast knowledge of the Scripture, um, he was able to um, uh, to investigate things and perhaps draw parallels. His book, Alien uh, uh, Encounters, uh, is is a um, uh, is a book that is strange in the sense that what he did was the first third of the book he's just examining uh, the report of phenomena that's unexplainable. And then, of course, people, as they read it, they recognize that what he's going to do is he's going to move them to the sense that we live in more than a three-dimensional world. We live in hyper-dimensions. And, and it was unusual to have someone... Um, with the label Bible teacher speaking in quantum physics or speaking of hyperdimensions uh, or string theory or any of these sorts of things. Uh, and uh, that was the, um, uh, the ability that he had uh, because of his technical background uh, to be able to um, uh, move across these barriers that are normally there. Oh, we really can't talk about that. Uh, well, yes, we can. I think that uh, uh, we're we're told in Scripture to have a reason for the hope uh, that's within us, uh, that we need to be able to defend what we believe. And we need to be able to not necessarily have a, a, a full answer for everything, but I think the Scripture does address things, especially in the area of the spiritual. So was he using the idea of aliens to then kind of... Um, awaken some people to the idea there might be a spiritual reality and then point to God. Was this a kind of evangelistic tool? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was very effective. Um, it was less about telling Christians that aliens exist and more about telling non-Christians that if you believe in the, the supernatural and aliens, then actually maybe you should encounter the spiritual through Jesus as well. Yes. Well, part of the problem, of course, is that in, in, in is a definition of terms. Um, if what we're speaking about is something that is paranormal, there's certainly enough evidence of things that are paranormal. What we want to do is take that natural curiosity in the paranormal and show them, yes, angels, demons, the spiritual world is paranormal. Uh, but it is something that we, we don't have to run after the latest science fiction novel. In fact, the scripture does speak um, of a spiritual world, of spiritual conflict, uh, beings 
passing from one manifestation to another, angels appearing, disappearing, those sorts of things. The Bible does address that. The problem we have, of course, is that we, we'd like to relegate all of that to the tinfoil hat uh, people that uh, uh, you know meet every year in Roswell, New Mexico, uh, and, and wonder about uh, flying saucers. Uh, but you can't deny that there are manifestations and have been throughout the history of man. Fascinating stuff. Well, if you want to find out more about that, you can, of course, go to K House's website and there's all those sorts of resources if you want to find out more about aliens. But we should we should move on for now. Um, tell me about how you went from ministering here in the UK to then working with Chuck Missler and and then becoming president of his ministry, uh, K House, Coin Air House, or K House for short. Well, in 1992, as I said previously, he there was an opportunity for us to meet up. And uh, so he came down to Portsmouth. Uh, he was attending a conference on the Isle of Wight. So I picked him up uh, at Heathrow, took him down to the to uh, the ferry. He went across the conference. But when he came back, he had a few days left. And it was during that time that we were really knit together. Um, from that point forward, every single time that he would fly to Israel or go through Europe, he would stop, spend some time with us. Uh, and it was a lovely time. Like I said, he announced to me that uh, at that point, he says that there's just something between the two of us that I just really like. I, I really feel that there's um, a, a, a melding of the hearts together here. And uh, uh, you're one of the few people in the world that we can uh, that, that has the same quirky sense of humor and uh, and an interest and background to, to be able to talk about these things. And so really that started then. Uh, all the way along, I was working um, with uh, uh, Lockheed Martin, IBM, uh, here in, in Great Britain. And he kept saying, I'd really want to set up a, a Cornelia House Europe um, distribution center. And I'd say, look, Chuck, I, I'm, I would love to do that, but I'm doing this job full-time, which is uh, very difficult. And I'm also pastoring a small fellowship now, which is also taking a lot of my time to take a third thing on. I love you, but it's not going to happen. So in 1999, he really put the thumbscrews on me and said, uh, really feel God is 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 going to call you to a closer working relationship with you. I really like you to to think about to trying to help us do get our material out. And so what happened was I said to him, well, I'll tell you what, Chuck, if we get through Y2K, if nothing happens in Y2K, and I said it with a tongue-in-cheek to some degree, but um, I said then, then uh, uh, Marcy and I will, will fly out and we'll sit with you and Nancy and, and we'll just pray together. And so sure enough, Y2K came, it went, and uh, shortly thereafter we got on a plane. Uh, we flew out to California where we met them. And really just I, my wife and I just wanted to hear their hearts. Uh, both he and his wife Nancy were uh, were huge characters in the sense of, of ministry were more obscure. And uh, so that began more of a formal connection. Shortly after that, of us establishing things here in Great Britain, um, then uh, he invited me to sit on the board of directors, uh, which we did. And, uh, and then uh, we began to see aspects of his ministry that weren't being exploited. For example, he had a lot of video material, but none of it was on television. So um, I said, let me have the masters and I will go find places where... And, and that began that uh, uh, sort of connection. And then yeah. in 2012, we finally just said, uh, let's move together. And we moved to New Zealand. And that's where we've been ever wow. since. 
what you did there in taking Chuck's ministry and putting it on TV, I mean, we shouldn't we shouldn't gloss over this because this was incredibly important because really everyone I can think of who knows of Chuck Missler, almost everyone I know of, knows of him because they first saw him on Christian TV. Yes. And then would go and buy the DVD or look up the website or whatever. But but this was really how he became, for many Christians in this country, such a such a well-known name. It's mm. how I discovered him as well. Yes. Um, was through through TV and getting the message out there. But I, I, I love the story about Y2K and the Millennium Bug and how, <laughs> of course, literally nothing happened. And there were many, not just Christians, but but others, you know, predicting or prophesying some 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 terrible thing or big thing that was going to happen, and and it didn't. And that does lead me on to the question of, of prophecy, because K House is well known and Chuck was well known for for dealing with biblical prophecy. But there will be those who who, who have a hard time with that because they just see bad examples of this stuff gone wrong and they think of Y2K or the Millennium Bug or, Mm. um, you know, the the Blood Moons or whatever it is. And they say people predicted that in this year this would happen and it didn't. How do you respond to to people who are in that place who find it hard to kind of even, even talk about biblical prophecy today because they've seen examples of it where it didn't seem to come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Well, let me let me make a a, a, a um, differentiation. The um, situation with Y two K because I was working at IBM at that point uh, was there was a significant problem that needed to be overcome. Um, I worked on a team that for two years um, dealt with uh, replacing microprocessors and uh, writing code and whatever. And uh, and we started with the, the, the places of uh, uh, where the greatest damage could be done and worked our way down. And so the fact that there was nothing significant primarily was not because there was nothing ever there. Um, the, the, the real truth in the Western world was that um, the problem had been identified early enough, and a tremendous amount of resources were spent. Great Britain, probably more than any country in the world, spent a huge amount of resources to prepare for that. With Chuck Messler, although he, he is sort of branded with being uh, an alarmist then, um, at no time did Chuck ever try to make a biblical link with that. He was just simply saying this might be an opportunity for ministry, for if infrastructures fail, um, be the person in the neighborhood that has the extra water um, or the sack of beans. That was his primary. He was sort of a middle ground guy, but he had the technology background enough to know that uh, the technology world was 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 quite worried, uh, and it wasn't it wasn't somebody wasn't making a lot of money out of this. Uh, it wasn't a, a, a red herring, as it were. Now, speak secondly about all the blood moons and all these sorts of things. The September twenty third, two thousand seventeen kind of things. Part of the problem there is that um, people uh, within the church um, are utilizing um, biblical prophecy for divination. And uh, biblical prophecy is not for divination. And this is where they get into trouble. They, they take and go a little further than what the Scripture is informing us. In fact, the purpose of biblical prophecy is when it is fulfilled, it glorifies the Lord. For example, in the, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have more than 300 prophecies concerning Jesus. We look at them now in hindsight and say, well, of course, they're obvious. But you look at the disciples of Jesus who were with him for three years. He clearly told them what was happening. And it wasn't until after the resurrection they said, and now we understood what Christ meant. Part of the problem that is happening now is there's a lot of sensationalism going on. And, uh, uh, and, And 
I think, quite frankly, twisting of Scripture uh, to meet circumstances. I think we live in very interesting times, very exciting times. The Bible has a lot of stuff to say about the times in which we live. But I think the Scripture we need to be paying most uh, close attention to is the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus, as he's meeting with his disciples, didn't say to them, now some exciting things are going to happen, and I'm going to give you this little little pattern for you to go figure out uh, where to invest your money or uh, <laughs> when to go to holiday or whatever. Yeah. No, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the only thing that is necessary for us to be focused on. And unfortunately, I think there is an overemphasis on uh, something that borderlines and in fact sometimes becomes nothing more than divination. Mm-hmm. Now that Chuck Missler has gone to glory, you continue to to head up K-House. What does the future look like? Because for a lot of people, when they think of K-House, they'll think of Chuck. So is this now about continuing his his legacy? Is this about new people? What's the plan going forward? Well, you know, any time you have a a ministry with a big personality, a a patriarchal-type ministry, the the passing from one uh, generation to another is always difficult. The Billy Graham Association, long after Billy Graham uh, was no longer involved, they still did Billy Graham Crusades, even though Billy Graham wasn't there. Uh, And that, if you speak to Franklin Graham, you'll understand that that was a difficult thing for him. So what he did was he actually established Samaritan's Purse, which would become the thing that he would be known for. But that's also something he can pass on to his son and so on and so forth. Less personality-based. Um, when you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, he didn't look for an individual to pass the ministry on. What he did was he replicated himself with disciples. Uh, the, the view and vision of Cornelia House uh, is just that. It's a place of fellowship. What we hope to do is to uh, create even more of an environment for people to be encouraged on a personal level. We have tremendous resources that Chuck has uh, left, uh, an anthology of his teaching uh, Genesis to Revelation in detail. Uh, but even he would say the work had just begun. Uh, he would uh, be very frank uh, with regards even to himself that um, he felt many people did um, teachings on various aspects of Scripture much better than he did. Uh, and so uh, what you're going to see is a couple of things. One is, um, as a as a, an organization that in the past has made most of this available, um, as typical in a parachurch organization, you can buy the DVD, you can buy this. We're doing more and more free online. Uh, in fact, I met with the board of directors two years ago and said, uh, the, 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 the future uh, of our ministry is to go where the people are. Uh, and a great example of that was we took the Learn the Bible in 24 Hour um, series, and I looked at uh, the amount of sales that it's had. It was it was created in 2003. Um, by 2013, um, it or 2016, it had sold in all forms about 50,000 copies, which isn't huge, um, but it's significant. Uh, and then I went out on YouTube and just looked at um, what technically are illegal yeah. upload videos. And I just looked at session one and said, how many times has session one been uploaded and viewed by people? And it was over a quarter of a million. And so I immediately turned around the board and I said, look, if, if we really want to get this out, uh, we, need to, we need to ride the, 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 the stream of media to do that. And so um, I've taken us into a place to where um, I, I joked a little bit when I said this, but it is, I, I believe it. And that is, I said, as a ministry, we're going to try to outgive God. We're going to uh, reformat, remaster as much of Chuck's material as we can so it can be to a higher standard. And we're going to begin to put more and more 
for free on the internet. And uh, if at the end of the day uh, we take the over 1,500 hours of teachings that he has and we've simply made it all free, um, then that's fine. What's been interesting is, is since the announcement uh, of his passing on May the 1st, May Day, uh, very appropriate, um, it's been interesting to, to look at um, the, the YouTube traffic um, uh, session one, just on our site alone, is over 150,000 views now. And uh, it's just ramped way up. People are like, oh, Chuck, I guess I better go look at that. And so I, I always told Chuck, we, we laughed often. I said, uh, you know, Chuck, you're going to be producing new material for the next 10 years because we're going to keep taking your stuff, remastering it. In addition to that, there are uh, others like myself. I'm an expositional teacher. I've taught through the Bible twice um, uh, and, and that material is available. I do topical studies, um, have uh, some different emphasis than he does, uh, similar background in many regards. Um, no one can ever be a Chuck Missler. I mean, he's a totally unique guy, uh, as with anybody in the body of Christ. God never calls anybody to replace someone else, mm-hmm. but to be who they are fully in Christ. It's a wonderful place to leave it, Ron. Thank you so much for coming in and for sharing not only about your ministry um, personally, but about some of Chuck's life and what you're doing with K-House. If people want to hear more, find out more, where should they go? Well, probably just the website, which is the letter K followed by house, khouse.org. Uh, is the simplest place, um, and they can find out where the materials are, what they can do. Uh, and, and again, we love to hear from people uh, and uh, what we can do to assist them and equip them for the work of their ministry. Well, thanks for listening to The Profile this afternoon on Premier Christian Radio. Do hope you enjoyed those interviews with David Kinnaman and Ron Matson. We'll see you at the same time next week.